we have been studying this book of Romans, this New Testament letter that Paul wrote. And we started this back in the spring, took a little bit of a break in the summer and looked at some psalms, and we've picked back up in the fall. And um, we've seen a lot in this letter because Paul offers us a lot. But what is it mainly kind of that he has been trying to get across from us? Well, from the very outset, Paul really, he, he really knocks kind of any idea of a moral ladder to God out from under us, that he addresses both those who are bad or who we think are bad, and he also addresses those who think that they're good, those who had been judging those who they thought were bad, and he basically brings us to a point where everyone stands before God with really nothing to offer but their sin, and he says that everyone has sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. And he gives us this bad news so that, of course, he can bring us the good news, that, that those of us who are far off, that those of us who are lost in our sin, that we, through, by grace, through faith, have been brought near. And in Romans 6, that he actually says that, that you and I who believe in Christ, that we have been united with Christ. That we've been united with Him in His death and in His burial and in His resurrection so that even right now we are not what we were before, that we are now new creatures. And he brings us to this point at the beginning of the chapter that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks where it's these beautiful words that I know so many, so many of you already love. He says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And we're saying yes, yes, right? And then the last couple of weeks we hear these more beautiful words that you are now um, heirs, your fellow heirs with Jesus, that he is your brother, that everything that is coming to him, as Jake said, is, is also coming to us that we can call him our father. And you get to the point where you kind of go, okay, now, what is Paul going to say next? Like, all of these beautiful things have been building and building and building, and, and you kind of expect him, or I would expect him next to say, and you know what, is going to be, what the rest of your life is going to be like? There are going to be no problems. Now, because of all of these things are true, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you in this life. And of course we know that that's not what he says, right? And we know at the end of, of the passage that we looked at last week in verse 17, he says that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. And if you're anything like me, you might kind of go, Paul, like why did you, like, why did you have to bring up suffering now. Like in the middle of this wonderful, beautiful chapter with all of these glorious truths that are just kind of encouraging us, and then you have to talk about suffering. We don't like, we don't like to talk about suffering, do we? That we, we often even spend a lot of our energy and a lot of our time trying to keep ourselves away from experiencing anything that even resembles suffering. We don't like to talk about it. I saw an ad just about a week and a half ago, and I promise this is true. It sounded, I thought maybe I was reading an Onion article, um, but it wasn't. It was an ad for a Christian ministry that was offering a, a cruise where you would go and you would study the Bible on this cruise. And, and what, they, what they said is that it's something along the lines of, come join us in the Eastern Caribbean as we study the theme of how to endure pain and suffering together. 
And I thought, you know, that's a place that I would actually want to think about that topic in the beautiful Eastern Caribbean. But we don't, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. But the truth is, all of us, all of us suffer. And some of you this morning, you know that, um, especially because right now in your body you feel the effects of suffering, that you feel pain, that some of us are going through things that um, are, are nothing less than tragic in our lives right now. And what Paul is bringing to the point, he's telling you all these truths, and he's getting to this point, and he knows that you're going to suffer because nobody knew that better than Paul himself, that his life was full of it. And he's saying, because you suffer, do we just jettison all these other things? Do we just run away from this? Because a lot of people are tempted to do that. A lot of people are saying, because God allows me to suffer, I I don't want anything to do with him. And Paul begins, and will in the rest of this chapter answer that question. And he says, absolutely not. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. It's printed there for you in your bulletin. This is God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Amen. This is God's word that he gives to us in his kindness and in his love. And so let's go to him and ask that he would help us to understand it. Father, we um, come to you and we don't take lightly from what we've heard in the past weeks that we can call you our father. And for those of us in Christ that we are your adopted sons and daughters. And so we come this morning many of us knowing um, very well, um, very acutely what it means to suffer. And we bring that to you this morning, and we pray that what you would give us a glimpse of is the hope that is in the glory that will be revealed one day, the work that you are doing, the final accomplishment of it. Father, so that you might help us to suffer well, to suffer as ones who don't lose sight of that hope that is to come. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It was um, June 29th, 2003, and my wife and I were in our home. This was back when we lived in Jackson, Mississippi. And it was, uh, I believe it was maybe a Saturday night, and we were playing a card game. We were playing Phase 10, a very intense card game. We were battling one another. And that is when the contractions began and began to increase. And this was our first child that that Rosie was pregnant with. And so we had, you know, we had done all the research, right? And we were very thorough. We had read the books. We had had read the blogs. We had gotten advice. We had packed our bags, and we were ready to go. 
and we go to the hospital, and we go thinking we know exactly what to expect when we get into that room, and we were not prepared, right? Because what Paul, when he is, when he's talking about the suffering and the groaning of all creation, and he's thinking, I wonder how, like, I wonder how I could explain this. I wonder what illustration I could use in order to kind of get them to understand what this feels like. He thinks of the illustration of childbirth, that there is groaning, right? There's pain, there's suffering. But I think that those of you who've been there, and I think that my wife would agree with this, that the suffering and the pain of childbirth is not able to be compared to the glory of holding, you know, it's incredible, holding a new human being in your hands. That, all, that the glory of that almost immediately overshadows all of the suffering that just moments ago happened. And I think what all of us know, I mean, if we've lived any amount of time, is that we know that, that suffering and glory are inseparable things, right? That in every stage of our life, we experience the fact that suffering and glory go together, that the glory of a diploma is inseparable from the suffering of actually having to study, of actually happen, ha- having to do the work, to sit down, to write the paper, to take the exam. That the glory, you know, of running across a finish line of that race that you're like, why did I sign up for that race again? The glory of finishing that race is inseparable from getting up early in the morning and suffering and working out and running in order to get there. That we know that glory and suffering are inseparable. But Paul, what Paul wants us to see in this passage is that even though the suffering, the, the suffering of this present time is inseparable from the glory that is to come, that it is incomparable. That the suffering of this present time, he's saying, cannot even be, it, it cannot even be compared to what is coming. And he is saying that one day we will wake up, as it were, and everything, every moment, every instant of pain and suffering will feel like a distant and a bad dream compared to what God is working to bring about. And that's hard to believe. And that's hard for us to cling to. And so this morning, I just want to look at this passage and look at how Paul is getting us to understand this so that we can live as people who have hope, because we do. And I want to look at how universal the scope of this groaning is, how universal the suffering is, and then I want to look at how we live in the midst of it. How do we live with suffering? First of all, just how universal this is. He, you know, the Bible, if you've read, if you're familiar at all with it, one of the things you do know is that it, is, it does not shy away from this topic at all. It, I think it's one of the things that um, almost draws me the most to it is just the brutal honesty there is in Scripture with the characters that are all throughout it, that the most famous people in the Bible famously suffered. And we can read about it. Um, that we go and we look even at, at, at Paul who is writing this letter and Paul recounts for us all the ways in which after Jesus transformed him on that road to Damascus, 
that he was beaten and shipwrecked and, and imprisoned and stoned and all of these things, they're recorded for us. That the disciples could say much of the same thing, that we get to the very end of the Bible and John, who's writing Revelation, he's writing it on an island because he's been banished, right? That the Bible is incredibly honest about suffering. And, you know, if we're, if we're kind of drawn to thinking um, somewhat of like higher Christian life or health and wealth or prosperity that you hear so much preached in this country, you, ha- you almost have to wonder, like, have you read this book? Because at the very climax, at the very center of this book, the one who is the author, not only of it, but of all of creation, actually enters into it. And why does he enter into it? So that he can suffer. So that he can suffer and he can ultimately die, but so that he might rise again from the dead. Paul wants us to kind of step back even from that because I think that what happens with us is we go, yeah, but, yeah, but my suffering. Do you know, like, I cannot get my eyes off of my suffering. And so he wants you to get even the bigger picture of what's going on. And he tells us that it's not just people that are suffering, that it's not just humans that are suffering, that he says that all of creation is actually groaning, that all of creation is actually suffering because it is under bondage that it is in corruption, that he uses words like um, slavery and, and frustration, that it is under decay. And I think that, like, for a lot of us, when we think about creation, I don't know, like, I think that this, this, might, be a, this might feel different to us because we don't think about it often in those terms. That we don't think about the fact that, like, as you look out this window, maybe at this crepe myrtles across the street, that we might just see trees that to us look kind of pretty, and who's in just a couple weeks whose leaves are going to get really red. And we don't think about the fact that even those crepe myrtles are groaning right now, that they are longing for the day that they will be released from bondage. And you're like, what is the bondage that even creation is under? Well, they're in bondage because they cannot do, creation cannot do what it was made to do to its full extent. And what it was made to do was to glorify God completely and utterly. You go, okay. So creation um, cannot do that. And you go, why um, can't creation do that? And you go way back to the beginning of the Bible, as we often have to do when we ask questions like, kind of big questions like this. And at the very beginning of the Bible, what we find um, very simply is that God made everything for him. That he made everything for him, and in the middle of everything, that he made it to bring him glory, and in the middle of everything, he put his image bearers. He put humans. And there's a moment that you know about in Genesis chapter 3, when, when those who were made for God's glory, and those who bore his image, and those who walked with him in the cool of the day, and those who had no shame at that time, and those who... Um, lived in harmony with God, that they said to God, um, real, in essence, what they said to him is that we doubt that you're good, we doubt that you really love us, and we're going to take matters into our own hands. And they broke his law, and when they did that, they broke the relationship. And when this relationship between God and man was broken, that what Scripture tells us is that really everything else became broken with it. That this is when, you remember that, that um, God brings 
thorns and thistles into creation, and he curses the actual ground. It's by the sweat of your brow that that you will earn your bread, that you will make your bread, and we know that. And so he says because of that, it was subjected to futility that that because man rebelled against God, that even creation has has been cursed, and it is longing, and it is waiting, and it is eagerly groaning and suffering for the day when it will be released from bondage. And he has this imagery that it's kind of eagerly, tipped on tiptoe, kind of straining to see who are the sons of God. And you go, what does that mean? Well, even creation is looking for the time when, when we will be revealed in full. Because it's, in essence, we who have ruined everything. And it's our, when our redemption comes, so does the rest of creation's redemption. And I said that might be surprising to us because I think that one of the things that, that a lot of us have probably just maybe assumed or maybe we've even been taught is that creation is just... I don't, you may have heard somebody even say, like, well, this whole world is just going to burn up anyway, right? And I'm going to fly away to glory. And this, we, we treat it almost as if it's disposable. And I, and I think that, as sad, I mean, as sad as it is, that often it's we who are Christians who should love the creation because it comes from the Creator more than anyone have been guilty instead of harming it. And I think that for some of us, we go, well, what is not I mean, is this, world, is this the actual world that will be redeemed? And I think that with, uh, yes, that we can say absolutely that, that there are passages that talk about destruction and there's, there's passages that talk about fire, but the way that that has been interpreted um, through the history of the church is that there will be fire that God sends to cleanse this world. That there's an old confession called the Belgic Confession. and In the very last chapter, it says that God will come and he will, and he will send fire and flame to this old world in order to cleanse it. And you might even think about like Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. He talks about using the same language with us that, um, that like a refiner's fire that that we are burned in a way. Why? To burn us up? No. To burn away all the corruption and all the pollution so what is left is pure and good and restored. And I think Paul tells us this not because he wants to go kind of on this whole other topic about talking about creation. And I think that we could talk about that for a really long time and it really interests me and I'd love to talk to you more about that. But I think that what he wants you to get is this bigger picture that he says that, you know what, you're not alone in your suffering. In fact, everything is suffering. That everything has been subjected to decay and frustration and everything together. All of creation is crying out and all of creation is longing and eagerly waiting redemption. That it's waiting like this imagery that he uses of like a long, intense labor, a really long one for this birth of this glory that's coming. And I think that that's why, and I know that you've experienced this, whether or not you've maybe described it this way or not, it's why what it feels like to live in our skin and what it feels like to live in our city, in this world, is this weird mixture of kind of, it feels like heaven sometimes and it feels like hell sometimes. That often it feels like, you know, we might 
We might look at the skies and we quote Psalm 19 and we say, the heavens declare the glory of God, how beautiful. And then we might look um, and, and see somebody that we know who's going through just utter torment. That we might have, you know, one of the most pure just moments of joy and in that pure moment of joy runs this thread of intense sadness. Because we know that, we know that, that joy is not going to last. And it makes us long, right? It makes us groan. It makes us yearn because we know that this can't be it. It makes us long for all of the suffering and the sorrow to be gone. That even our best memories are mixed with memories uh, of pain. They're mixed with memories of loss. That even our city that we look at as so, as so beautiful, and it is, is so mixed with sin and sadness and sorrow, and darkness, that even our bodies, which are incredible, right? Have you ever just stopped to think about, like, how incredible the fact that we're just breathing in air, and it's being converted, it's doing all things that scientists and doctors talk about that I don't know about, and it's doing all these things that we're alive, and they can do incredible things. Yesterday, I went to Fleur Field and watched some friends compete in the CrossFit Games, and I felt incredibly insecure about myself the entire time. But I also thought, like, isn't it a, like, it's amazing that we can do that. And it's amazing that they are dying, actually, right now. That it feels often like this mixture of just utter joy and utter sorrow. And Paul says, he's speaking to those of us who belong to Jesus, and he says that you have the first fruits of the Spirit. And what he's saying is that the inauguration of the glory that is coming, the glory that we cannot even imagine, the inauguration of the reversal of all death has already begun. And you know where it has begun? In you. You who he's already told are a new creation. You who have the Spirit living within you that the inauguration of that new creation has already begun, and it has begun in you. It's what theologians often call the already and the not yet. That, that this has begun, that it has started, that Jesus started it with his reversal of death, and it is continuing right now, and it is already here, but it is not, as we know, it is not yet here in its fullness. And what he's saying is that your suffering is a part of bringing that to fruition. Just as that spirit entered into us who were dead, as the word tells us, it tells us we were utterly dead, and it brought us back to life. He's saying there's a day coming when that is going to happen, even for the creation itself, even for this world itself. That there's a day coming when it will be like for us waking up from what seemed like a strange dream mixed with joy, but also intense pain. And that we will wake up to a glory that we cannot even imagine. And so we ask, so what? So what, what does that matter? Do we just sit and wait? He tells us to wait patiently, right? Does it mean we're just bound to suffer? What does that mean now? If you, if, you, 
if you looked at this passage and, and you've heard even um, in this chapter so far, what Brian has said a couple of times is that the Spirit shows up in this chapter. And in, in these verses particularly, the Spirit shows up in us. And where the Spirit comes, He brings life. And what Paul is saying is that you have life. That you have life. That you are not, you, your body will die, but you, have, you will have a new body. And he says that you have, because of that, you have hope. Eight verses, six times he says the word hope. Hope, 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 hope. And you go, why, what is the difference? For us who believe this, for us who have hope, what, is it, what difference does it make in how we suffer? And I just want to say a couple of things about that, and then I want to tell us a story, and I'll be done. And I think the first way that it helps us to suffer, um, the first way that hope makes a difference is that we don't just zoom in and focus on our suffering, that, but what we, what we realize is that we are part of this bigger thing. And that we have, be, we have become, what Paul says elsewhere, we've become ministers of reconciliation. That we are actually agents of the gospel who are bringing thy kingdom to come and thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. That we are a part of that. Why? Because the first fruits of the Spirit are alive in us. And so what Christians have taught for so long and um, what our tradition especially has taught is that every sphere of this world... Every sphere where we have influence, and you might say, I don't have any influence, and I would say, you are wrong, you do. And that influence might be a a tiny baby, that influence might be a job that you hate, that influence might be the fact that you don't have a job and you've been talking to people looking for one, And, and it's what we're called to with our hope is wherever we are, that we are coming and we are bringing pictures of the future glory to bear in all realms of life. I read one man who who put it this way, and I don't think I can say it better, so I'm going to read it to you. He said, Christians must be in the forefront of bringing in the present time signs and foretastes of God's eventual full healing to bear upon the created order. In all of its parts and at every level, signs and foretastes of of God's healing justice to bear upon the world that is still, still full of corruption and injustice and oppression and division and suspicion and war, signs and foretastes of God's fresh beauty to birth within the world, signs of hope for what the Spirit will yet do, that you and I have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have life, we have hope, and we go, that makes all the difference in why we do what we do. But I think that hope also makes all the difference And the fact that we who know, and the Bible promises this, and we're talking about it uncomfortably again this morning, the Bible promises that we will suffer because we are fellow heirs with Jesus. And so what we're called to in this hope is not not to become sadists, that's not what I'm saying, but, but not to avoid that. To not spend our lives kind of, as this world tries to tell us, to spend our lives... You know what you need to do is you need to do everything that you possibly can to insulate yourself from any sort of harm or any sort of suffering. And so what that looks like usually is that we are not building the kingdom of God, that we're building these little fortresses where we hope nothing will ever touch us and nothing will ever hurt us. And we all know how silly that actually is. 
that often for those of us who have children, that, that we spend a lot of our time and a lot of our energy kind of thinking, how do I keep them from ever experiencing pain? You can't. <laughs> and you're wrong to. Because you want them to be fellow heirs with Christ, provided that they suffer with him, so that they will also be glorified with him. That often what we find is that we're spending all of our time just with people maybe who are exactly like us, because we don't want to spend time with people who are really hurting. We don't want to spend time with people who are going through awful things. Our hope gives us this picture of this glory that is coming, that will be revealed, that we we cannot even fathom. And as we set our eyes upon it, what Paul is saying is that it allows us not only to go and to, to bring newness of life in all spheres, but it also allows us to not be afraid anymore that we are going to hurt and that we are going to suffer. That it actually allows us to bring life and to, and, and to bring redemption into the midst of it. And I think this passage is it, it's not doing it in full, but the rest of the New Testament fleshes that out, that it gives us a calling, right? That Paul is preparing you and me to suffer well because suffering is one of the best things that God uses in order to proclaim his redemption in this world. And I asked God about a week and a half ago, as I was praying about this passage and started to think about it, I asked him to to help me to open my eyes to see people around me who are believers, who are Christians, who are suffering, and who are suffering with hope. And what does it look like to suffer with hope? And I, I promise you that when I asked that, I was not prepared for the response. I don't think that those instances weren't there beforehand, but it's just everywhere that I looked, I saw Christians clinging to the hope of the future glory, clinging to the hope of the fact that they are now a new creation, suffering well, and in, in doing so, transforming things that are around them, bringing hope and liberation to the people around them. And I just want to tell you, there were so many, so many stories that I heard that were, that were near to me. I want to tell you one story, and I'm, I'm going to end with this. One of my friends um, from college is a guy named Matt. And Matt lived in a house. We had a group of guys who lived together in a house. And Matt um, was a guy that I wasn't kind of as close to. Um, and I think that part of the reason for that was, at the time, he was a little bit he was a little bit standoffish. He wasn't cold, but he was kind of driven. He wasn't like a touchy-feely kind of guy. And, and so I never really knew kind of a lot about who he, what his story really was and who he really was. Um, but I've remained friends with him. And, and just recently, actually, it's kind of amazing, but just recently I've learned the rest of his story. Because up until this point, all I really knew is that Matt was, had a father who he was estranged from. And he had a mother who had has passed away. And passed away even when I knew him when I, in college that his mother was no longer living. Well, recently, uh, I heard the rest of his story. And I wanted to hear it because I knew that Matt had changed a lot in the last 20-something years. And that he was a lot different. And he, he, told, he told me about the fact that not long ago, a couple years ago, his dad, who he was estranged from, was on his deathbed. And when he heard about this, Matt was a believer and his dad is not, and he knew that it, just inside of him, he was like, I've got to go see my father. I need to talk to him. 
And at that time, you know, he still was kind of resisting it and resisting going. But at that time, he was working. He had just begun working for a nonprofit in Houston. And it was a Christian organization that assigns you like a mentor that just kind of you talk about life with. And this mentor met with him for the first time, knew nothing about him. And the mentor said to him, I think that the reason that I'm here is to help you love your father well as he dies. And Matt didn't really know what to do with that. But he chalked it up to the work of God's Spirit, and he said, I need to go uh, to Memphis. And he goes to Memphis, and he spends a week with his dad before his dad passes. And they talk back through 21 years of estrangement, and they talk back through um, the hurt and the pain that had existed in their family. Their family had been just utterly broken apart. And Matt gets to share this hope of glory. He gets to share the beauty of redemption that Jesus offers to us. And his father embraces this and repents of his sin and is with Jesus now. And after his father died, Matt, he flew back to Houston to get his family, his wife and two kids, to drive back to Memphis for the funeral. And this is the part of the story that I really, did, I really knew nothing about, is that when he, as he was driving back, he said, you know, he told his family, he's like, I, I have to stop and visit somebody. And he had to stop in a little place called Duncan, Mississippi. Now, I've been to Duncan, Mississippi before. I mean, it was, I blinked and almost missed it. It is tiny, and it is in the delta of Mississippi, and there's not much reason to stop there. But he had to stop because there's one person that he, that he needed to see. He had never thought of this before until this time, but it just hit him. And so he pulls into Duncan, Mississippi to go visit an older woman whose name was Lee. And what had happened is when Matt was 15 years old, his mom, who had recently divorced his dad, was um, engaged to another man who lived in Mississippi. And so on Matt's 15th birthday, she was actually going to visit her fiancé and with his little brother, they went down to Mississippi. And Matt stayed behind with his father because it was his birthday and he really didn't want to go. And his mother and his little brother and his mother's fiancé were driving down a highway. And a woman named Lee was driving in the opposite direction and was very drunk and had dropped her cigarettes on her floorboard and reached down to grab them. And as she did, she swerved and she hit... Matt's mother head-on and killed her instantly and killed his little brother. And the fiancé walked away from this accident, but as Matt tells it, he walks away just an enraged and bitter man. That he dedicated the rest of his life, he became a cop who was uh, enforced DUIs and he wanted to eradicate the world, he said, from people like that. As he spent that week with his father, that what he realized is that his father and he were estranged because his father just couldn't bear the pain. He couldn't bear the groaning. He couldn't bear to see his live son because he was so afraid of losing him as well. And so Matt, who had been living in somewhat of a prison himself, who had been groaning inwardly, and has met with his father, had been released from that prison, had been released from that cell. Um, he, he goes and he stops in Duncan, Mississippi, and he finds this woman, Lee. He finds where she lives, and he pulls into her driveway, and he knocks on her door, and she's not there, but this man answers and says, 
well, why don't you just leave her a note if you need to tell her something? And so he goes back to his card and he begins to write a note. And as he's writing this letter to her, she pulls into the driveway. And he gets out of the car and he walks over to her window and she rolls the window down and he says, he says, are you, are you Lee? She said, yes. And he says, my name is Matthew. And before he could even get it out, that just the tears just started to stream down her face. And she says, I know exactly, I know exactly who you are. And Matt said, at that point, he wasn't sure what he needed to do or even what he wanted to say, but he said, I, I knew I had to find you, and I thought that you might want to know that, that I'm okay and that this is my family over here and that they're okay. And she says that, she said to him, she said, for 21 years, I have not slept through the night. And she said that I have spent countless hours going and seeing mental health professionals who will help me deal with just the immense shame and the guilt over what I have done to you and what I have done to your family. So she gets out of the car, and Matt embraces her, and they go in her house, and his family comes in, and they spend hours talking. And he spends hours telling her about the forgiveness and the grace and the love of Jesus and the redemption that is offered. And he has this picture, and I wish we could project it on the wall that you could see it. He has this picture of his family and his arm around this woman who killed his mother and his brother on his 15th birthday. And she's a short African-American woman with her, hand, or with, her, with her head just leaning against his shoulder. And her eyes are closed, and the look on her face is one of pure freedom. And I don't know where you are in terms of suffering. And I don't know where you are in terms of pain. But for those of us who are in Christ, that we have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. And that doesn't mean that we're exempt from groaning, but it means we groan with hope because there is glory coming. And we patiently wait, but we have been released from death. And that means we go and release those around us from death as well. That there is a day coming that will make all of our suffering and make all of our pain and make all of the tragedy feel like a distant and bad dream. That Paul says that hope that is seen is not hope. And he also says that no man has seen, no ear has heard, no man's heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Let's pray. Father, we believe, but we pray that You would help our unbelief. We pray that You would keep us from insulating our lives um, from what You are even using to bring about the future glory. We pray that as hard as it might be, that even in the midst of it, that you would give us a, a faith and a trust and a belief that is well beyond our capacity. That you would drive us towards forgiveness, that you would drive us for, towards redemption, that you would help us to see 
our jobs and help us to see our families and help us to see every opportunity in front of us as one of bringing little pieces of that future glory to bear, even right now. And we ask this only for your namesake. Amen.